IEEE-SA Voice shares insights and perspectives from the IEEE-SA community, subject matter experts, and industry leaders that are working to raise the world's standards, drive market solutions, and much more, keeping you at the forefront of technological innovation for the benefit of humanity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the IEEE-SA Rethink Health podcast series. I'm your host, Maria Palombini, and I'm the director of the IEEE-SA Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice. This podcast takes industry stakeholders, technologists, researchers, clinicians, regulators, and others from around the globe to task. How can we rethink the approach to healthcare with the responsible use of new technologies and applications that can afford more security, protection, and sustainable, equitable access to quality care for all individuals? This is an ambitious task, but this is one that we are definitely committed to. We're going into our fourth season of the Rethink Health podcast, and you can look at our other seasons at ieesa.io slash health podcast. So we're getting into the question of telehealth. As a result of the recent pandemic, the term telehealth has become one of those most frequently used, and it does not appear to be going away soon. The reality is that we see telehealth today, and it'll look very different tomorrow. It's manifesting in many different forms. And it's not commonly, as we know it, just the doctor and patient experience and some sort of audio video platform. It has become so much more than that. And I'm sure you've heard the term remote patient monitoring or RPMs. The telehealth experience has changed our expectations as patients on what we can expect on healthcare services. By that, I mean, we kind of see it almost like a retail experience, right? We want VIP concierge service, we want amenities, and we want convenience. And then there's this growing RPM space, these wearables, these biosensors in honor around the human body, monitoring us for some sort of therapeutic condition. There are so many different forecasts when it comes to the growth of RPM. It could be anywhere from US $150 billion by 2028 and to the idea that a patient might be wearing one or more on their body at any given time. Here's what we know, regardless whether we call it telehealth, RPM, mobile health, the future of delivering health care is no longer just confined to a facility and it will need to be patient-centered. So season four, we're calling it telehealth quantum leap into the patient-centered care. And this gets to the innovators. And the innovators we're talking to are actually the winners of the IEEE SA telehealth virtual pitch competition. Plus we'll talk to industry leaders, clinicians, and other researchers who are at the forefront of driving innovation with solutions, looking at accessibility, human factor design, flexibility, interoperability, security, inclusivity, and all the other necessary ingredients to migrate RPM into a patient-centered care system. So before we begin a short disclaimer, any of our guests on our podcast series, IEEE does not endorse their products, does not financially support them. We just bring them here for their expertise. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Josh Rabinowitz, co-founder and CEO of Articulate Labs. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. Articulate Labs garnered their second place position in the IEEE SA Rethink, the RPM Machine Virtual Pitch Competition. And their work was on wearable devices for remote direct physical therapy application and monitoring. And we're going to get to the core of this in just a second. But Articulate Labs has also placed favorably in other industry competitions, including winning the 12th annual IoT Wearables Technology Innovation Award, plus a host of others. So, Josh, before we get to the core of the work you do, we'd like to humanize the experience for our audience. So can you tell us a little bit about you? You're a co-founder of Articulate Labs. Really, what drives your passion in your work and how did you get here? I'll start by answering the second question first. We got into this quite literally by accident. 
My co-founder survived a near-fatal motorcycle accident some years ago that forced the amputation of his right leg. One of the indirect outcomes of that is that he developed osteoarthritis in the knee of the fully intact leg, the left leg, as he was relearning to walk. He was advised by his orthopedic surgeon to delay surgery and to exhaust all the conservative options available to him. He found physical therapy to be the most effective means of mitigating the pain and dysfunction that existed in his knee, but he wasn't able to make it to all of his physical therapy sessions. It was not a lack of desire. It was an issue of time. He had work commitments. He had family commitments. The physical therapy clinic was a half hour drive each way from where he lived. It was a really difficult thing for him to be able to budget time for self-care. He's a control systems and an embedded design engineer. He's using a therapy at physical therapy called neuromuscular electrical stimulation. He's having these electrical pulses run through the quadricep muscles around that knee to assist with the re-strengthening retraining process. But it's operating on a pre-programmed sequence. And he's wondering, why on earth am I driving a half hour to basically move my leg in time with this thing? Why am I following this technology? Why is this technology not following me? Why is it not adapting to me? It's kind of what started his development process and figuring out, can he make this therapy a little bit more intelligent, a little bit more adaptive? I got involved as someone who has no engineering or medical background, just one day randomly looking up knee osteoarthritis and discovering, oh, there's actually 14 million in the U.S. impacted by this. Not to mention the tens of millions of others around the world with the same condition, not to mention hundreds of millions around the world dealing with all kinds of other musculoskeletal conditions. And we found out, one, this is not a unique situation. We were both operating under the impression this was something that only impacted amputees. And two, a lot of other people have the exact same issues of time, distance, reimbursement, of existing commitments, all making access to physical therapy very difficult. Realizing those things made us wonder whether the thing that you know was kind of being developed almost as a hobby, as a side project, is something that we might want to really consider sharing with others. It's interesting that you brought up the unfortunate accident with your partner. As I talk to many more startups, I always find that there is a personal passion behind, especially in the healthcare life sciences sector, why they decided to go with this type of RPM product or that kind of thing. And that's really where the success is, is that passion that fuels that commitment. So this is not atypical from what I've heard from other co-founders that I've talked to. So you kind of got into a little bit about what Articulate Labs does what exactly, in your words, is the vision of bringing this type of innovative approach to physical rehabilitation to the healthcare domain? I've been through, like other people, physical rehab for different sort of issues. And I agree, going to the facility, getting the appointments, waiting for your therapist. Sometimes they run late, sometimes they don't, or you can't get there. There's like a whole host of issues that you kind of sometimes feel like it's almost like a job, right? The mission that's going to resonate with the greatest population, I think, is going to be convenience. When we think about the act of strengthening a muscle, that talking about, well, how do we make this easier? How do we make this more convenient? How do we blend this more into the user's lifestyle? It is somewhat antithetical. So much of the ethos that goes into physical fitness. That part is difficult. But so much of the issues that we run into with regards to access is a population of people that cannot budget time for self-care, don't feel like they can or don't necessarily know how to start. And being able to effectively augment movement that they're going through every day with a proven therapy such that steps walking up and down stairs or getting out of a car can become strength building repetitions outside of that physical therapy clinic or gym 
you know, now there's really an opportunity to help improve access, improve people's ability to care for themselves on a broader, deeper, longer term. My mission would be in finding ways to talk about the process of strengthening rehabilitation of caring for the body as something that's for everybody to get outside of the stereotypes or concepts that if you're not looking like someone who's showing up at one of the Marvel action movies, then why are you even going to the gym? What's the point? I think there's a real need to talk about maintaining your body because this is your primary vehicle. This is your means to functional independence, to, in many cases, to goal achievement, whether it's travel or caring for loved ones or doing things that you enjoy. You're having the strength to function the way you want to, not the strength to measure up to someone else's standards. I think the focus on self-care comes in many different forms, and I think it is important. Now we're going to get to the core of our interview, which is about the innovation. So I imagine your team really got into some heavy research. You probably looked at different models, and there's probably years of work in R&D that went into developing this project. Maybe you could share a little bit of insight with us on what that experience was like and what exactly. But more importantly, I'm really interested to hear what would you consider the most astonishing piece of information that came through in that R&D phase of research for the product? I think the main astonishing outcome and the thing that we've had the hardest time explaining to others is that there is no average when it comes to figuring out where people need to be or where, where they want to be, especially when you're talking about people who've been coping with, and in our case, a, a knee condition, but really anything on the kinetic chain. So anywhere between lower back and ankle, when you have an injury in one of these places, you have a tendency to develop compensatory movements as a means to reduce pain in that area. So you might think about the folks we've seen in our studies, people who are looking to avoid putting weight on their knee or to avoid extending their knee will develop all kinds of strategies to not use that joint, whether they'll pivot on their other leg, they'll actually hitch the entire half of their body with the affected knee, they will drag the leg with the affected knee somewhat behind them. All these things are unique to each individual. And the way that these things worsen over time is unique as well. So every happy gait is the same. Every unhappy gait is unhappy in its own way. Attempting to impose a pre-programmed gait sequence on these individuals and forcing them into a template, we found, first of all, it was very difficult to actually trigger the right muscles at the right times going with this average. Looking more into relationship between specific quadricep bands and the function of the knee joint during movement, you actually run the risk of exacerbating the condition if you are strengthening without regard to joint laxity or joint alignment. That really created a need to kind of scrap any sort of template-based stimulation and really start with a form of a model of the joint running on the device that is learning from and effectively distilling movements down into just sets of force vectors as a function of femur and tibia, position, motion, acceleration, etc. And we really try to just meet the patient where they are, working with a physical therapist to calibrate the device to that user's gait and to determine which muscles we want to trigger at what times a gait, which movements are problematic that should be addressed by triggering muscle contraction. That's our way to to personalize treatment of something that you said at the beginning that really stuck with me, patient-centered care. That's our, our opportunity to make truly patient-centered care versus imposing our own biases, as it were, about how a person that we've never met should walk. Absolutely. We see this sort of challenge actually transcend the entire healthcare domain. It's putting patients in a box. I think it's really important the way you guys got to this level of 
I don't want to say personalization, but maybe there's an element of precision on how to use the technology to best support helping these patients. I imagine our audience might be sitting there and saying, wait a minute, does this mean that we don't need physical therapists anymore? We know that Nistim, which is one of your products, is not designed to remove the physical therapist out of the process. But I think the real opportunity is in when you guys describe it is intelligent. So from your point of view, how can Nistim really enhance the effectiveness of a physical therapist in working with their patients? I imagine the data capture in the tool can access and utilize. Maybe you could talk a little bit from that point of view. Sure. The first thing we've said when we're talking with physical therapists who might have a little bit of that skepticism. First, there's a lot in the electrical stimulation space. And two, there's been a lot of startups that have marched into clinicians' offices, kicked in the door and saying, we're going to drag you kicking and screaming into the 21st century without really paying any attention to their wants and needs. So first, I want to say right up front, like we get skepticism and don't begrudge anyone for it. The way we manage that is by saying we're not looking at this as a means to place physical therapy, we're basically taking some of the most mindless parts of your work, which is either setting someone up for electrical stimulation or guiding someone through strength building repetitions. And we're trying to automate that and allow at least some of that work to occur outside of the clinic. Then you can talk about this as a means of improving workflow, saving little bits of time with each patient as a means to increase throughput, ways to maintain a level of communication with the patient that's not present. It's a huge issue you touched on earlier with regards to your physical rehabilitation experience. 70% of the population that's prescribed physical therapy don't show up for all their sessions and are not compliant with their home-based regimens. That represents a financial impact to the physical therapist beyond the altruistic drive to do right by their patients. When you have a patient that's not showing up, you're not earning money. You have a patient that cancels or no-shows, now you've got the opportunity cost of having scheduled someone that isn't going to pay you and delayed someone that would. With the new remote patient and remote therapeutic monitoring-based reimbursement codes, there's now opportunity for the physical therapist to be able to have some level of visibility on user activity that will be able to measure and report things like steps walked, stride speed, knee range of motion. We'd love to be able to provide a granular level of information to make it clear also what's happening on stair ascent and descent or sitting up from a chair. Other metrics to make it clear whether someone is making progress in their physical rehabilitation or if they are at risk of backsliding. By having that data collection and analysis process be reimbursable, now there's an opportunity for the physical therapist or overseeing clinician to be able to earn some revenue on the patients that they're not getting to see. Physical therapists have been really deeply impacted by covid in general, just by the increasing difficulty with getting people in the door, with decreasing reimbursement for services provided, we see this as a way to be able to provide care and maintain communication while still helping maintain the physical therapist's bottom line. Yeah, I think for physical therapists, there's a lot of opportunity here with access to data for sure. Are you a tech startup wondering how likely telehealth is to keep its momentum in the next five to 10 years? McKinsey forecasts roughly 25% of the total cost of care for U.S. Medicare patients will shift to the home by 2025. And the remote patient monitoring market is expected to surpass $1.25 billion by 2030, according to MarketWatch. Despite how favorable the growth trends are, it's not easy to be a telehealth tech startup today. 
The IEEE SA Telehealth Startup Community is designed for technologists, entrepreneurs who have a proof of concept, prototype, or maybe an early commercialization of a technology product in the telehealth domain. The community offers tech and industry mentorship, partnership development opportunities, and the invitation to be part of a think tank to help drive trust and adoption of these technologies. Plus, you can earn credits to present demos and participate in virtual and face-to-face -face events hosted by IEEE's Healthcare Life Science Practice. If you want to join us and make this impact on the future of telehealth, you can join for free at ieesa.io backslash telehealth-startup. I hear misconceptions around connected wearables and from doctors, sometimes they're like, I don't know if I want to use this thing. They've got some preconceived notions about them. And patients, they really know about wearables from the point of commercial fitness trackers, Fitbits, you know, your Apple watches and so forth. What have you seen as the biggest misconception when it comes to these types of applications for connected wearables? Really, the biggest misconception I see is really less on the patient or provider side. It's really in the service provider side. There are a lot of companies in the wearable space, and the vast majority of them don't have to be FDA regulated. They don't have to really be deeply concerned about security. If they are, they're concerned at a really thin surface level. They don't have to be concerned about encryption. They only pay a small amount of attention to HIPAA. The misconception I've run into that's been the most difficult to deal with is actually finding vendors to work with on some of this development work that are able to meet the standards for security, for privacy that are coming, not the ones that are here. We see Europe as an example of where we think might go over here, or at the very least, it's a market that we want to enter into in the future, and we will need to be able to meet standards for privacy. The number of companies we've talked with who claim to do this work and then have really no idea of anything that's going on that's going to be necessary for a medical device versus a quote-unquote wearable or versus a fitness application and assuming that we've done one so we can do them all. That's dangerous. We've had to push ourselves to learn what these standards are to really understand them and then to really grill any potential partner that we meet with on how they intend to meet these standards. And more often than not, we're kind of met with blank stares. So I think anyone else who's in this space or who's looking to get into this space, I think it's critical to build up a base level of knowledge of security, privacy, encryption, and so forth. I don't know enough to be able to actually affect anything, but I know enough to be able to challenge and to oversee anyone who's going to be doing this work on our behalf. That's really important. You want to make sure you have the right partners because overall it's a brand representation and you have to have it be aligned. Very important point. You started to scratch the surface of this question a little bit when you first introduced Articulate Labs, but you know, the theme of this podcast is patient-centered. The competition was heavily focused on this idea of transforming RPM into patient-centered system. How do you see your technology being patient-centered from a point, whether it's from accessibility, feasibility, inclusivity, or even just the human factor design? Do you see that there's a population of patients that you all can better reach and serve with this, that maybe they were not accessible before, or they were just resistant to the idea of physical therapy. How do you think you guys are really meeting that idea of patient-centered? 
I think that element of starting with a very basic concept of how that knee joint is functioning and building the model from the ground up with the user's own kinematics, with the data coming off of the IMUs being placed on their legs, make sure that the model that develops is exactly who the patient is, what they're doing, that there's no concept, whether at age, gender, physical ability, that it doesn't create a conception about what someone does or does not need. It is putting a lot of control in the hands of the overseeing clinician to be able to tailor the stimulation timing and location and also be able to adjust sensitivity, bias, stimulation to one muscle over another as a means to really make sure that this is hitting the right muscles at the right times of gait or is contracting the right muscles in time with problematic movements as a way to ideally make those movements a bit easier for the patient. I think one real interesting possibility that we have here for inclusivity and for access is the ability to provide physical medicine care to people in remote or austere conditions. This is certainly something that is already capable with a lot of the remote or virtual physical therapy options out there, and we don't view ourselves as placing any such service like that. What we see with this device is the ability to really augment and make use of someone's existing movement. So the people who are in these conditions, they may be like an hour away from a physical therapist. They may be doing work that makes it really difficult for them to set aside even 15 minutes to follow along with a guided physical therapy session. With these populations, there's an opportunity to use their actions, use their movements, and get the same strength building exercise in without requiring the patient to set aside additional concentration, additional time to change clothing, so on and so forth. This is something that ideally will blend in seamlessly into the user's life. And we're passionate about the possibility of having care, not just augment life, but having it be in support of life. The work that you're putting in while wearing this device, the strength and re-education of that muscle that you're going through is going to be exactly in line with the things that you're already doing, the things that you want to do or the things that you need to do. I think that's really intriguing to us and represents a way to integrate physical medicine into people's lives that hasn't really been approached previously. I think that's fascinating. I think this goes a lot into human factor design, the adaptability, the feasibility. These are all really important elements when we're talking about patients and their physical ailment or condition. I think that's really an important place and a good place to be in getting your product advocated for. You want patients to say, this was the best thing that worked for me. I think you all are on the right track for sure. When I talk to a lot of tech startups, they say to me, oh, I wish we had a technical standard for this, or I wish this was already in place because this would have made this part of our work a bit easier. So do you think there was potentially any technical standards, if any, that would have been appropriate or data standard that would made any aspect of developing this product faster, more efficient, easier? And as you went through the process, did you identify any other areas that you said, wow, this would have really opened the doors to innovation in our space, in the RPM space, in the world? space and what do you think might be the best way to address it or to go about it? I'll hit the second question first and say any standard that's out there, it's nice to have as a guidepost, but for our purposes, it's got to be either harmonized or at least a synchrony with the FDA's doing. If we don't have the FDA on our side, we're not selling anything to anyone in this country, at least. And furthermore, the FDA tends to be a gold standard adopted by many other countries that have distributors reach out and be interested in buying our devices. So getting FDA clearance is not just the gateway to the rest of the U.S., it's the gateway to getting to much of the rest of the world. 
in that regard, I'd say for us, having anything around FDA documentation or standards around use of real-time operating systems within a medical device. There's not a lot of that out there that I'm aware of at the moment. I could be completely wrong here, but we're only aware of a small handful of medical-specific operating systems, none of which wound up being applicable for what we're trying to do because we're trying to achieve real-time application of therapy. That does not line up with a lot of existing devices in the medical space that tend to be set-top boxes with sets of leads or electrodes or some form of input or output that basically relies on the person remaining stationary. Having more wearable technology means having more firmware that's operating in a really dangerous space. We're fortunate standards-wise that nothing that we're doing here really has high risk of ending someone's life. But that is not the case if you're developing a pacemaker or if you're developing a next generation joint implant. So having frameworks in place for the next realm of operating systems and really having frameworks in place for technologies that are going to be semi-autonomous and understanding what are the bright lines past which autonomy cannot be allowed. There has to be fail-safes in place to stop AI from deviating in such a way that it leads to a deleterious outcome for the patient or a potentially fatal one. I think those are the places where right now we don't see a lot of definition and we have a path that we see to market based on previously clear devices, but we also recognize that we're still looking at bringing something that is going to be relatively unique to the medical device space. So we're hoping that us punching through will be an opportunity to, to broaden the discussion about software and firmware development as we get more into wearables, as we get more into decentralized care. I think inevitably need to start putting more faith or energy or authority in technologies that are going to be assisting people on medical conditions when a clinician's not physically present. Absolutely. I think the FDA and EMA, depending on where you are in the world, cannot lose sight. It's really important to be compliant and under their guise when it comes to anything that you're going to use in a medical application. Josh, you've given us so many great insights, especially with the application and what you guys are trying to treat. Are there any final thoughts you would like to share with the audience when you say, I'm going to develop technologies under the context of patient-centered care? We're actually hosting some students right now in biomedical engineering. And one of the most disturbing things that come out of that situation is finding out that they're looking at adapting what we're doing to the knee and fitting it onto someone's hip. And they wanted to actually physically prototype the device, not even adding in electronics, not adding in stimulation, just trying to understand how to get a device to fit around a leg. And the professor, as we understand it, basically kind of came screaming into the room to knock the materials out of their hands and said, no, you will only simulate this. You will never build a single item until run this through whatever simulation package you want. And that makes a lot of sense for like an implant. Trial and error is not viable there. For something like this, if you're looking at developing a wearable, then yeah, by all means, try it on yourself. That's so much of what we had to do in terms of figuring out a form factor, figuring out how to address corner cases that would exist during gait, such as you know, stamping your foot or sneezing or stepping off of a curb. Those are only things that we were able to figure out solutions to because we we're trying this on ourselves. 
for one thing, if you're not willing to try this on yourself, or if you're nervous or embarrassed, or think about the clinician or the patient that you're going to be talking to, how on earth are you going to convince them if you can't even convince yourself? The other thing, going back to the concept of patient-centered care, and to some extent, the idea of unconscious bias, we didn't know what this device needed to do until we had the opportunity to broach the subject with a wide variety of people different age, gender, size, gait abnormality, all had unique points of view about what they needed out of the device that we would not have figured out. And this being founded by two men, a lot of conditions or a lot of situations with women with regards to leg shape, the aesthetics to some extent, the act of shaving your legs, opening up pores across which current bridge the gap and create pain. Those are things we had to learn about from others in the course of controlled experimentation to make sure that we we're developing something that other people would actually want, not just what we would want. So much of this, I think, really comes down to experimentation. Obviously, with full respect and understanding of what the standards are imposed by FDA, understanding institutional review board, how they operate, such that when you set up this experiment, you're doing so in a way that's ethical and safe. But you've got to be able to try this out and discover problems that you would not have come across otherwise. You're not going to simulate your way out of it. You're not going to guess your way out of it. It's the best way is just have someone else break your stuff and tell you what's wrong. That's an interesting point. I think here, if I may, maybe the moral of this part of the story is that one size does not fit all. It's really important because you tend to think, oh, it works here. Let's just apply and make a little change and put it here. So really glad you drove that home, Josh. Josh, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing this great insight, the innovation and the dedication to precision therapeutic that you're building for this pool of patients. Thank you for being here and sharing that with us. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. If all of you out there want to learn more about Articulate Labs, you can visit articulatelabs.tech. Many of the concepts that Josh and I discussed today are addressed in various activities here at the IEEE-SA Healthcare Life Science Practice. The practice really engages industry stakeholders such as Josh around the world to come together and bring these discussions forward. As you notice, Josh already started to allude to that there are some concerns and challenges we have to look at when it comes to autonomous systems and the use of AI. They're great technologies, but we need some more safeguards there. How can we do this in such a way that we're going to really open the doors to innovation and not be a barrier and kind of get this elephant out of the room? So, so if you're interested in getting involved in any of our activities, we have WAMI, Wearables and Medical IoT Interoperability Intelligence, and Transforming the Telehealth Paradigm, which are industry connections programs, and they're really getting to the core of all these connected technologies being used in a remote environment to address patients' needs with privacy, security, the flexibility, the human factor design. They're attacking all these issues. If you want to find out more about the work of the practice and all these individual programs I mentioned, please visit us at ieesa.io backslash hls if you enjoyed this podcast if you enjoyed the conversation or found something useful in this tidbit of insights that were shared with you today we ask you to share it with your peers your colleagues or on your networks this is the only way that we can get these important information out into the domain to talk about the important work our volunteers are doing in the healthcare life science practice. So please use hashtag IEEEHLS or tag us on Twitter at IEEESA or on LinkedIn, the IEEE Standards Association when sharing this podcast. I want to thank all of you for joining us today and listening in. Continue to stay well and until next time. 
On behalf of IEEE Standards Association and IEEE SA Voice, thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit standards.ieee.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.